Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out occultlondon.co.uk to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, consider backing us on Patreon or you can find me on Buy Me A Coffee. Every little bit goes a long way in keeping this show alive. A heartfelt thanks for all your kindness and support and those of you who are uh, supporting on this way already. Now let's dive into today's episode. This is the second episode I have released this week as we had a bit of a break over the Christmas period so I wanted to get some more episodes out to you all in the meantime. In this episode we are continuing on our history of magical talismans and amulets by talking a little bit about the magic and talismans from ancient Egypt. In the golden age of ancient Egypt Um, Magic and mysticism was deeply ingrained in everyday life. So it shaped the religious practices, medicine and also the day-to-day routines of the citizens. The people of this time would have perceived magic as being a tool, a potent force that could mould and manipulate their surroundings. And they utilised it to protect, uh, to do healing and other, other things like divination, etc. The ancient Egyptians had a unique term for magic, which was known as Heka, which roughly translates as the power of words or spells to affect change. So similar to our definitions of magic as being um, the art of causing changes in accordance with will. Heka is seen as a divine energy, and skilled magicians and and individuals adept at manipulating this force it was believed could bring about different magical results ranging from healing those who were sick safeguarding people for you know travel and also even ensuring victory for wars and you know other political ends as well as even bestowing life after death Heka was often brought to life in ancient Egyptian folklore, depicted as a deity, sometimes as a child or a serpent. And the hieroglyph symbolising Heka represented a pair of raised arms, indicating a magician's power to reconfigure reality using spells and incantations. The magicians and priests who were skilled in the art of magic or heka would have been held in really high esteem in ancient Egypt for their extraordinary abilities to tap into this potent force. And heka's extensive usage and influence would have literally permeated all aspects of Egyptian life, from religious rituals to commonplace everyday activities, and it can even be seen in everything from you know the death rites to love spells to amulets for protection and luck and there's countless examples of Heka's application in the ancient Egyptian manuscripts such as the book of the dead 
Uh, an example can be found in spell 125 that states, I have bestowed upon you the power of Hecker. You shall direct it, and it shall be at your command. With your words and deeds you shall wield magic, and no obstacle shall bar your way. This quote is thought to have been from the words of the god Ra, and as we can see it signifies that magic, that Hecker, is a force to be harnessed and applied with specific intent. It's like a divine gift that's bestowed upon mankind for them to direct that power with their words and with their deeds. It doesn't mention anything about um, using it in a moral way, which is quite interesting. But um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting from that point of view. It also emphasises the idea of the deceased being gifted with the power of Hecker for their journey through the afterlife. Another reference to Hecker is found in Spell 261 of the Coffin Texts, which also further underlines its importance. And the spell likens Hecker to the first language used by Artem, the creator deity, during the cosmos's creation, which highlights its role in the universe's ongoing preservation. So Hecker isn't just seen as a tool for the magician, it is seen as the fabric that weaves the universe into existence and also ensures its continuation. And spell 261 goes as follows. O you nobles who are in the presence of the Lord of all, behold, I have come to you. Respect me in proportion to what you know. For I am he whom the soul Lord made before there came into being the two meals on earth. When he sent his soul, I, he was alone, being what came forth from his mouth. When his myriads of spirits were the protection of his companions, when he spoke with Kopfri, with him that he might be more powerful than he, when he took authoritative utterance upon his mouth, I am indeed the son of her who bore Artem. I am the protector of what the soul lord commanded. I am he who caused the Ennead to live. I am, if he wishes, he does, the father of the gods. The standard is high. The god is endowed in accordance with the command of her who bore Artem. The august god who speaks and eats with his mouth. I have kept silence. I have bowed down. I have come shod into the presence of the bulls of the sky. I have seated myself in the presence of the bulls of the sky. In this my dignity, of greatest of the owners of doubles, the heir of Artem, I have come that I may take possession of my throne, and that I may receive my dignity. For to me belonged all before you had come into being. Go down and come upon the hinder parts, for I am a magician. As we can see, this quote really highlights the magician's power in ancient Egypt and also asserts their divine right to rule and mastery over the universe. The magician claims to be the son of the goddess who bore Artem, the creator god, and also the one who caused the Ennead, a group of nine deities, to live. 
And interestingly, the, the writer also refers to them as if he wishes he does, which again suggests this ability to control reality through these magical powers. And it's almost like an ancient Egyptian version of the modern day phrase, fake it till you make it. In the structure of ancient Egyptian society, the really the threads of magic and religion are, are deeply intertwined. And these mystic rituals and religious ceremonies were usually held in large temples and would have been the domain of priests revered for their profound understanding of the sacred arts and connection to the divine. However, magic wouldn't have just been a priestly practice. It was also part of ordinary people's lives as well, as it still is today. Everyday folks would have often visited temples or sought guidance from local magicians, diviners and healers, um, asking them to conduct rituals, um, offer tributes to their dead ancestors and also commune with the gods. And the belief was that by performing these rituals they could secure protection and prosperity for their community. Magic would have held a prominent place in ancient Egyptian healthcare as well. So physicians often would have been magicians as well uh, and they're kind of very intertwined the two roles but they often would have utilized spells and chants to treat patients as well as creating you know, amulets and talismans and they were very firmly convinced that obviously magic could remedy ailments and heal pain the ancient egyptians also believed that magic was a divine gift it was a conduit for conversing with the gods so the practice of magic wasn't considered evil or malicious, rather it would have been seen as harnessing um, the universe's natural forces to achieve a specific aim. And a prime example of this magical tradition is the, the Book of the Dead, which is um, an anthology of spells and incantations which is designed to help the departed through the afterlife. And this book was frequently engraved on tomb walls and transcribed on scrolls, um, along with the deceased. And it was designed to act um, as kind of like almost like a talismanic property in itself, as well as obviously the spells that were contained within it. And you also see that later on, um, particularly with the grimoireic tradition, where even if someone couldn't read, they would often have just the fact that they had a copy of a particular grimoire would mean that they were considered to be a powerful magician or witch in their community just for the fact of having this rare book in their collection. Amulets and talismans were also commonplace in ancient Egypt and they would have been crafted from various materials like parchment, stone, metal and glass and they often took the form of either deities or sacred animals. They would typically have been worn as jewellery or carried as pendants and Egyptians would wear these amulets and talismans daily seeking protection from misfortune, um, animal attacks like crocodiles, uh, complications during childbirth and pregnancy. Particularly the one of the biggest ones is the journey through the underworld um, after people were passing away um, and there's been lots of different amulets found strategically placed and wrapped into the actual 
um, burial wraps of mummies that have been used in this way. And talismans were equally popular to attract positive attributes um, in good health and longevity. And as we mentioned in the introduction, usually amulets are considered to be something that kind of wards away um, something, kind of misfortune, that kind of stuff. And a talisman is, is seen to be more uh, something that draws things towards you. The people that created these magical items and talismans and amulets would have been known as Sao. And they were the artisans behind these magical artifacts. And their profession really centred around creating these talismans and amulets for the community. And broadly these magical items would have fallen into two categories. Those inscribed with magical scripts and those without. And when these amulets were worn by the living or placed on the dead during burial rites, prayers or magical words would be spoken over them. And this is in effect a method of magically charging the amulets with power, which has most likely been um, would have been used primarily by the priesthood. The charging process involved inscribing potent words onto the items thus imbuing them with a triple power comprising of the actual substance itself so it could potentially be like a a rare stone or a gem the spoken words and the power within the inscribed words as well and amulets would have commonly been fashioned into you know, also a particular god, for example, so there would be an extra level of power from the point of view of the actual object itself. The exact method of charging amulets and talismans in ancient Egypt, um, unfortunately we don't have any details about that. However, priests and magicians probably use specific magical and spiritual techniques to imbue these objects with the form and power of a particular god or goddess it's most likely this would involve lengthy invocations referring to the deity's various aspects to forge a connection allowing the object to become imbued with the divine power and thus act as a conduit for the god or the goddess and this method shares quite a lot of similarities with the god form assumption technique that was later used by obviously the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn but also uh, you know various other magical orders as well where the magician would essentially focus on embodying all aspects of the divinity or the god form they're trying to assume and there's many different beautiful invocations from this time that illustrate this type of magic such as uh, this prayer to Sekhmat Bast from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which was translated by Margaret Murray. And the way that Godform Assumption kind of typically works is you want to try and get as many names and titles, as many kind of points that make up the fabric of that particular deity and incorporate them all into this thing that you're then bringing into yourself from that point of view. The prayer to Sekhmak Bast goes as follows. Mother of the gods, the one and only, mistress of the crowns, thou rulest all. Sekhmet is thy name when thou art wrathful. 
Bast, beloved, when thy people call. Daughter of the sun with flame and fury flashing from the prow upon the foe. Safely sails the boat with thy protection, passing scatheless where thy fires glow. Daughter of the sun, the burial chamber, lies in the darkness till thy light appears. From thy throne of silence, send us comfort. Bast, beloved, banish all our fears. Mother of the gods, no god existed, till they camest there and gave them life. Sekhmet of the boat, the wicked fear thee, trampling down all evil and all strife. Mother of the gods, the great, the loved one, winged and mighty, unto thee we call, naming thee the comforter, the ruler, Bast, beloved, mother of us all. And that's a, um, a prayer to Sekhmet Bast, who is one of the one of the lion-headed um, goddesses. So it's like a lioness goddess. And also a, also another kind of variation of Hathor. There's actually an Egyptian legend where uh, Hathor trans- changes into uh, the lioness Sekhmet. But as you can see from that particular invocation, there's lots of different titles like Sekhmet of the Boat, Mother of the Gods, Winged and Mighty. All of those things, uh, when used in a specific invocation, could be used to kind of, again, channel that energy into a specific magical object. The belief in obtaining um, divine protection or healing through a close connection with the deity is deeply ingrained in ancient Egypt, and this belief finds its eloquent expression in the myth of Isis, Osiris and Horus, which really highlights the crucial role of magic and talismans in the lives of the ancient Egyptians. The myth revolves around Osiris and his sister Isis, who ruled over Egypt harmoniously until Set, Osiris's brother, abruptly disrupts their reign. Following Osiris's brutal murder and dismemberment, so Set chops Osiris up and casts his body up and down the Nile, Isis embarks on a mission to collect his scattered remains. She creates a golden replica of Osiris's missing phallus to restore his completeness and breathes life into it through powerful enchantments involving the god Ra. This act of magic uh, temporarily resurrects Osiris and then enables him enables the conception of Horus, who is the hawk-headed child of Isis and Osiris, who then ultimately defeats Set. The importance of the missing phallus of Osiris and Isis's creation and the creation of a new phallus is quite significant in that narrative because to achieve Osiris's resurrection, it was essential for him to be whole and the missing phallus almost acts like a talisman or an amulet it plays a really crucial role in this magical process and interestingly a similar practice was observed in ancient Egypt among embalmers so when a person who had lost a leg passed away the embalmers would actually fashion an artificial leg for the individual's journey into the afterlife so he had to, the the person who had passed away had to be complete. They had to have all their body body parts in order to to make that journey. 
Another important concept in ancient Egypt that held great significance in the realm of magic is the concept of the true name. And it was believed that the true name of a being held the key to controlling its essence. And among the ancient Egyptians, Isis was highly revered as the goddess of magic. And she possessed a remarkable gift, the ability to uncover the true names of all creatures. Isis's knowledge of these true names really kind of plays a vital role in ensuring her son Horus's protection and eventual victory over Set. And by possessing the true names of various creatures, Isis can exert control and influence over them, thus safeguarding her son from harm. And there's a story which unravels this idea through an enlightening account of a dispute between Set and Horus. So in this tale, Horus basically guesses the power of a true name by making Set confess his name. Thereby, Horus basically captures Set's essence and gains control over him. And the potency of the true name, or Ren, in ancient Egyptian cosmology is really, really important because it's an individual's secret name, or Ren, is known to the gods and considered an inseparable part of the, the individual's soul. And if you owned the name, it would give you access to the potential destruction of a person and their soul. So as a consequence for this, a lot of individuals in ancient Egypt um, actually adopted nicknames to shield their true names from misuse. And the soul's longevity was basically ensured as long as that true name remained unscathed. Obviously, they had a very complicated process of embalming and mummification as well. So this further kind of safeguards the soul's existence when they do travel into the afterlife. However, if people did find out somebody's true name in ancient Egypt... Um, it could lead to, you know, um, destruction of the soul. So you get figures like uh, the Pharaoh Akhenaten, who witnessed their names being ritually eradicated from monuments and texts, um, which kind of signals the obliteration of their secret magical name, and then obviously consequently their soul. And this reverence for the hidden power of names resonates in several cultures as well so you know if we look at the babylonians greeks and romans they also have similar belief about the power of the name and that you can manipulate god's power or control a person's destiny or command a place's authority by knowing its name and magical traditions since ancient egypt and also contemporary esoteric societies have also um use this same idea often you'll find people take on a magical name when they join particular organizations and also in the solomonic magical tradition um, the idea of knowing a spirit's true name is a way of calling them or working with them The importance of the influence of the sacred name also extends into the animistic universe and the mindset of the Egyptians 
is exemplified in the usage of hieroglyphics as energy channels for deities. So every god or goddess had associated myths and unique abilities familiar to the common populace. And these would have been frequently invoked. For example, there's an interesting tale from the Middle Kingdom period that relates how Isis acquires her power over snakes and scorpions. And in the story, the goddess Isis crafts a clay snake using the sun god Ra's spittle. And when the snake bites Ra, Isis alone can save him. But she only agrees to save him after Ra imparts his secret name to her under the stipulation that it be passed on to her son Horus alone. So it's this idea of she even tricked the sun god, the one of the most powerful gods in ancient Egypt, to help her with this um, idea of the, the, the magical name. There's also lots of other gods and goddesses um, who had specialised abilities in narratives and also depictions uh, in different temples. Um, so, for example, with the hawk god Horus, who is credited with being able to control crocodiles and hippo hippos in the Nile. And obviously, you've got to remember, hippos are quite dangerous. And there's various different stelae from the late Third Intermediate Period and the late Ptolemaic Period that illustrates this with plaques dedicated to Horus, adorned with hieroglyphic inscriptions and relief figures of Horus as a child. And the figure is positioned above crocodiles, sort of grasping various creatures and was believed to offer protection from harmful deities. And there's a really good example of one of these can be found in the Petri Museum, and I'll share an image of this in the show notes if people want to have a look at it. But the inscription on the stelae reads as follows. O aged one who rejuvenates himself in his time, elderly one who achieves youthfulness, cause Thoth to come to me at my voice that he may drive back for me the backward-faced. Osiris is on the water. The eye of Horus is with him. The great-winged scarab is spread over. Great in his grasp, creating gods as a child. May the one on the water emerge intact. If the one on the water is approached, the weeping eye of Horus is approached. Back you who are in the water, you enemy, dead male or female, adversary male or female. Do not raise your faces, you who are in the water, at the passing of Osiris by you, let him by to Jedet, with your mouths covered, your gullets blocked. Back, rebel, do not raise your faces against the one who is on the water. It is Osiris. Um, as you can see, that's a kind of like a magical prayer for protection. So it acts a bit like a an amulet from, from ancient Egypt. And it's calling on the help of Horus to basically protect people from... Um, the the one in the water, which is basically a alligator, crocodile, or a um, or a hippo, um, which he wouldn't want to encounter in those days. We wouldn't want to encounter it now either, to be honest. Um, so, as we can see from this inscription, that the person for whom this amulet was created is interestingly also associated themselves not just with Horus, but also with the god Osiris, who's the god of all things. Therefore, when the crocodile goes to attack, 
and the crocodile or the hippo is known as the one who is in the water, they will hopefully decide not to because they'll realise that they are attacking a divine being. So going back to the idea of the God form assumption technique, this is kind of very similar. Again, you are assuming a assuming the power of a divine being through reading out this particular spell. Another example of this type of magic can be found in inscriptions and amulets dedicated to the god Thoth, who's the ibis-headed deity and inventor of writing and magic, and he's mentioned in multiple texts as having magical powers. So, for example, in the literary work known as the Prayer to Thoth for Skill in Writing, which dates back to approximately 1150 BCE, uh, which is towards the end of the New Kingdom. In this piece, a young scribe appeals to Thoth, the deity of wisdom and writing for inspiration. And the prayer was discovered amongst the papers of uh, Papyrus Anastasi, which is a scroll that was found in Thebes, and it provides a, an interesting glimpse into how ancient Egyptians regarded the profession of a scribe and the aspirations associated with this occupation. And the prayer goes as follows. Come to me, Thoth, O noble Ibis, O God who longs for Kumnu, O dispatch writer of the Enneads, the great one of Unu, come to me that you may give advice and make me skilful in your office. Better is your profession than all professions, it makes men great. He who is skilled in it is found fit to exercise the office of magistrates. I have seen many for whom you have acted, and they are in the council of the thirty, they being strong and powerful through what you have done. You are the one who has given advice, you are the one who has given advice to the motherless man. Shay and Renawetet are with you. Come to me that you may advise me. I am the servant of your house, let me relate your prowess in whatever land I am. Then the multitude of men shall say, how great are the things that Thoth has done. Then they shall come with their children to brand them with your profession. A calling good to the Lord of Victory. Joyful is the one who has exercised it. This is a prayer to uh, Thoth for skill in writing. The ancient Egyptians, much like their kind of prehistoric forebears, also looked to the natural world and cosmos as being you know, a profound source of power, wisdom and connection. And they would have operated under the belief that through understanding and manipulating the natural and spiritual realms, they could harness that energy and tap it into a kind of wellspring of potential. And the Egyptians would have perceived a potent creative force hidden in words and images they sought to unravel the innate nature of beings and objects and the intricate web of connections that connected everything together the links of things between things would have been to a large extent dictated by correspondences similar to what people do now with uh, books like 777 or you know, there's lots of different Kabbalistic and magical books of correspondences but they'd often be shared or connected by attributes such as colour or the resonance of a name 
and then through that they would have identify a relationship um, and they also believe that you could then transfer qualities or create effects across the pair by ac actions executed on one. So this is a form of sympathetic magic. So Hecker, the mystical force, breathes life into these connections and then creates a kind of network of sorts. And this idea is illustrated well by James Fraser in his Golden Bough when he describes a solar ceremony that would have been conducted by the priests daily. Every night when the sun god Ra in ancient Egypt sank to his home in the glowing west, he was assailed by hosts of demons under the leadership of the arch-fiend Apepi. All night long he fought them, and sometimes by day, the powers of darkness sent up clouds even into the blue Egyptian sky to obscure his light and weaken his power. To aid the sun god in this daily struggle, a ceremony was daily performed in his temple at Thebes. A figure of his foe, Arpepi, represented as a crocodile with a hideous face or a serpent with many coils, was made of wax, and on it the demon's name was written in green ink. Wrapped in a papyrus case on which another likeness of a peppy had been drawn in green ink. The figure was then tied up with black hair, spat upon, hacked with a stone knife and cast on the ground. There the priest trod on it with his left foot again and again and then burnt it in the fire made of a certain plant on grass. When our peppy himself had been effectively disposed of, waxen effigies of each of his principal demons and of their fathers, mothers and children were made and burnt in the same way. The service accompanied by the recitation of certain prescribed spells was repeated not merely morning, noon and night, but whenever a storm was raging or heavy rain had set in or black clouds were stealing across the sky to hide the sun's bright disk. The fiends of darkness, clouds and rain felt the injury inflicted on their images as if it had been done to themselves. They passed away, at least for a time, and the beneficent sun god shone out triumphant once more. And that's a description about this idea, kind of about the uh, this idea of the uh, sympathetic magic that's kind of uh, in James Bow's, James Fraser's golden bow. Apologies. Um, turning to talismans and amulets, so that's kind of a bit of a background about the sort of magical stuff of ancient Egypt. But if we talk about the actual amulets themselves, um, we can find there's lots of different ones, basically. So, for example, from 700 BC, there's various different small tablets of clay um, or stone were created that show Horus holding snakes and scorpions. As we discussed earlier, there's lots of different prayers and spells where you would pray to Horus to kind of defend you from scorpions. And it was thought that if you believe that if you poured water on the stone amulet, it would empower the water to cure snakes and scorpions as well. So it was kind of like this antidote to poison. There's also other amulets that were designed to appease the gods who might attack them. For example, we have amulets dedicated to the snake god Melet Sega and the scorpion goddess Selket, which show 
that these objects were for protection against snakes and scorpions, but also demonic forces. The goddess Selket is quite interesting. She's also known as Serket. Um, she's a fascinating goddess, actually, um, and is very much associated with protection and healing. And Serket can be seen in two ways. One, as a woman with a scorpion on her head, or as a scorpion with a woman's head. And Selket's often invoked for protection against scorpions, stings, and other poisonous creatures. And one historical example of an amulet to the goddess Selket is made of blue faience ceramic and it depicts the goddess Selket holding a scorpion in each hand and the amulet was believed to have the power to ward off poisonous creatures and also protect the wearer from harm. There's another example of a talisman to the goddess Selket which is a Selket jar and basically these jars were often used in ancient Egyptian tombs to hold the organs of the deceased and the pots were alabaster or limestone and the idea was that the jar would protect the deceased organs and obviously ensure that their passage to the afterlife was safe. And there's a beautiful example of an Egyptian spell that mentions Selket from the Book of the Dead that references Selket's role as the Great One of Magic reflecting her role as a goddess of healing protection in ancient Egypt. It goes as follows. I am pure, I am pure, I am pure. My heart is pure, my heart is pure, my heart is pure. O Selket, great one of magic, protect me and guard me from all evil things that would do me harm. Let no poison enter my body let no venom come near me. Let no pain or sickness afflict me. May your shield heal me from all harm and make me strong and healthy. Another one of the most famous Egyptian amulets is also the Eye of Horus. And you still see these around for sale in places like Camden Market in London. The Eye of Horus is one of the most well-known amulets for protection um, and in terms of the origin story there's a battle with Set Horus loses an eye which is then restored by Thoth the god of wisdom and then wearing this eye if people actually had an amulet of Horus's eye it would safeguard the wearer from the harmful influences of Set and also you know other kind of evil forces that cause sickness. So the Eye of Horus in ancient Egypt really represents this idea of protection from evil and being able to see as well, it's kind of clear seeing. You also get this idea of the hawk high, high above the ground, but being able to see everything. It's kind of clear sight. It's described in the coffin texts as follows. The eye of Horus, which hath been made whole again, shall protect this person from all dangers and all enemies. It shall guide him on his journey through the land of the dead and shall lead him to the eternal life of the gods. And that's from the coffin texts. 
There's also another text that describes its powers as follows. The Eye of Horus is the symbol of divine power and protection. It shall be worn as a talisman by all who seek the favour of the gods. It shall bring them health, prosperity and happiness and shall ward off all spirits and negative influences. In later Egyptian periods, amulets designed to protect children were also widespread. And these were typically cylindrical objects made of metal that held a narrow, kind of thin roll of papyrus that contained a text with magical inscriptions written upon it. And there's an excellent example of this in the British Museum, which is known as the Hieratic Papyrus of Buikanons, and probably butchering that name on this particular talisman there's three deities that are asked to safeguard a child and the prayer goes as follows we shall keep her safe from sakmat and her son we shall keep her safe from the collapse of a wall or the fall of a thunderbolt we shall keep her safe from leprosy from blindness throughout her whole lifetime there's also another example of that in um not actually a physical physical talisman but we have what's known as the magical lullaby or charm for the protection of a child which is an inscription from the 16th or 17th century BCE and this goes as follows this was actually a spell that was designed to be sung um, to ward ghosts away from sleeping children which goes as follows. Run out, thou who comest in darkness, who enterest in stealth, his nose behind him, his face turned backward, who loses that for which he came. Run out, thou who comest in darkness, who enterest in stealth, her nose behind her, her face turned backwards, who loses that for which she came. Comest thou to kiss this child? I will not let thee kiss him. Comest thou to soothe him, I will not let thee soothe him. Comest thou to harm him, I will not let thee harm him. Comest thou to take him away, I will not let thee take him away from me. I have made his protection against thee, out of effet herb. It makes pain, out of onions which harm thee, out of honey which is sweet to living men and bitter to those who are yonder. Out of the evil parts of the ebu fish, out of the jaw of the merit, out of the backbone of the perch. And that's a charm called Charm for the Protection of a Child, um, which was would have been also used in a, in a kind of in a, a amulet way to protect uh, sleeping children. Talismans and amulets also played a crucial role in the mummification rituals of ancient Egypt as well. And we see lots of amulets of scarabs um, connected with this particular practice. Scarabs were closely associated with the sun and resurrection and were often placed in the mummy wrappings for protection. And the most important of these was the heart scarab. It was placed directly over the heart as part of the preparations of the deceased. Described in the Book of Coming Forth by Day or the Book of the Dead. And ancient Egyptians considered the heart the really the seat of intelligence and memory and crucial for achieving the afterlife. And a heart scarab was used to bind it to silence to ensure that the heart 
did not bear false witness against the deceased during the weighing process in the underworld. So therefore heart scarabs, uh, scarab amulets were used as substitutes for the heart if, if it had been lost in the afterlife. So the amulet would be placed on the heart and bound underneath the bandages of, of the mummy. And it was very much kind of focused around around that idea. And if we read the Egyptian book of Coming Forth by Day or the Book of the Dead, it talks about how the heart scarab should be consecrated by a man who is clean and pure, had not consumed meat or fish or engaged in sexual activity and should make the heart scarab from green stone with a gold-plated rim. And carved upon the scarab would be a spell. And this is the one that they recommend. O oh, my heart of my mother, O oh, my heart of my mother, my heart of my different ages, do not stand as a witness, do not oppose me in the tribunal. Do not show your hostility against me before the keeper of the balance. For you are my car which is in my body, the protector who causes my limbs to be healthy. Go forth for yourself to the good place to which we hasten. Do not cause our name distinct to the entourage who make men in heaps. What is good for us is good for the judge. May the heart stretch at the verdict. Do not speak lies in the presence of God. Behold, you are distinguished, existing as a justified one. And talismans, talismans and amulets in ancient Egypt were also used as potent, protective objects as well. And the scarab amulets are an excellent example of this because scarabs, although they're obviously a symbol of resurrection on and the sun often had magical spells or phrases carved onto them that would link the wearer to the regenerative um, abilities of the insect so we have inscriptions such as armon is my strength or strong is the heart which really serve to imbue the object with magical power with heka and by extension the owner of the talisman or amulet or the wearer and this really illustrates how the Egyptians believed in the you know transformative power of words when spoken or written by powerful entities and during the elaborate mummification rituals the, the deceased would have been adorned with protective talisman like necklaces you know, featuring the Eye of Horus and and also small statues of deities to guard against demonic forces. A good example of this is the four sons of Horus, who are the protectors of the canopic jars that contain the deceased vital organs. And the idea being that they would act as guardians um, on the journey to the afterlife. And the four sons of Horus are still used to this day by you know, various different sort of magical groups as particular guardians for their groups as well. One particular unique talismanic object was known as the Hippocephalus, which is derived from the Greek. 
and the term means that which is below the head and these amulets were typically fashioned from stiffened linen which would be inscribed with images of the gods and placed under the mummy's head and their purpose would have been to keep the body warm in the afterlife so demonstrating they're obviously their concern for the deceased and the comfort but they usually also have prayers as well so there would be a prayer to our moon that would be recited during the consecration of this talisman uh, once again drawing on the gods you know perceived protective and beneficial influences and in the Mo collection which i believe is in france there's a really good example of a um, hippocephalus which is adorned with a beautiful inscription and designated for a beneficiary named the triumphant Osiris Shanainen, recognised as the son of Nes Nebhet. And the inscription on the object showcases this really kind of beautiful level of detail. As I mentioned, with any of these images, I'll add the links to them in the show notes so you can just click on it if you want to have a little look about what I'm talking about. But the contents of this inscription are as follows. I am the hidden one in the hidden place. I am a perfect intelligence. Among the companions of Ra, I have gone in and come forth among the perfected souls. I am the mighty soul of saffron-coloured form. I have come forth from the eye of Horus. I have come forth from the underworld with Ra. I am the house of the great men in Heliopolis. I am one of the beautified dead coming forth from the underworld. Grant those things for his body and grant heaven for my soul and a hidden place for my mummy. I have come forth from the eye of Horus. Another symbol that people are probably very familiar with as well, which you see this all over the place um, and it's still you know, for sale in different shops, is obviously the Ankh. And this is a really enduring talismanic symbol um, that served as one of the most important symbols in terms of talismans and amulets encapsulating the concept of life but also the eternal nature of existence. The Ankh symbolised the union of male and female principles so it resembles a looped cross, the loop signifying eternal life while the cross embodies the physical plane of existence. And this symbol was often portrayed in the hands of gods and goddesses and also as a hieroglyphic character representing life. And the Ankh was also believed to possess the power to bestow life on the dead. It was often placed in tombs and used in different funerary art as well to evoke this idea of life after death, fertility and generation, regeneration. Um, there's a good example of the power of the Ankh can be found in a passage from the coffin texts. And the coffin texts basically refer to the ancient Egyptian burial texts that were carved onto coffins and sarcophagi during the Middle Kingdom era. It goes as follows. O oh, you who are at the head of the western horizon, you who are within the western horizon, Grant that I may come to you, for I have seen the Ankh, the Lord of life, my Lord. I have come to you, my Father. I have come to you, my Protector. I have found you, and I have seen the Ankh. I have come to you, that I may live forever, that I may exist forever. 
So as you can see, that passage kind of highlights the significance of the Ankh as being an emblem of eternal life, but also underscores the belief in the afterlife as well. That's all we've got time for in this episode. However, we will be continuing this discussion in our next episode with a discussion on the magical talismans and amulets of ancient Greece and Rome. So if you have enjoyed this episode and want to find out more, then please stay tuned. I'd like to finish the episode with a poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley, which is quite well known, called Ozymandias of Egypt. I met a traveller from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half shunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor, well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on those lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. <laughs> <laughs>